Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Just and the Suffering podcast, featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. i got a big show for you this week. We're going to do some more NBA this week. I'm going to be joined by fan size NBA editor Ian Levy to preview the NBA offseason, where are all the big free agents going to go, where's Kevin Durant signing, where's Kawhi Leonard signing, what are the Knicks doing, is Brooklyn really getting Kyrie Irving? We're going to talk about all that with Ian in just a bit. We're also bringing back uh, fan sides Veronica Bruno to preview Wimbledon. Veronica made her podcast debut a couple weeks ago, previewing the French Open. That was a lot of fun. I want to bring her back on for Wimbledon, the most prestigious major in tennis. So that's coming up later in the show. Also going to talk in the seventh inning stretch about the Tampa Bay Rays and this crazy idea that came out last week about how they want to split time between Tampa Bay and Montreal. I don't know how that will work. We'll discuss that in a bit. And be sure you're locked in the United Show for this week's two-minute drill. For the last-minute edition, thanks to the latest craziness coming out of that Met Clubhouse, specifically Mickey Callaway and Jason Vargas cursing out reporters now. It never ends with this franchise. Just a complete embarrassment. My thoughts on that in a, at the end of the show. But we'll get started this week's opening tip, where I'm going to recap the NBA draft and some of the big headlines right after this. With the third pick in the 2019 NBA draft, the New York Knicks select R.J. Barrett from Toronto and Duke University. That's no Porzingis reaction from the draft, kids. <laughs> no crying today. This is who they wanted. All right, we are back with this week's opening tip, and that is who Nick fans wanted, courtesy of ESPN's draft coverage. The Knicks taking Duke guard R.J. Barrett with the third overall pick in last Thursday's NBA draft. Before I dive into the specifics of this draft, including my thoughts on Barrett, I want to take one thing off the top of my head here. The amount of trades in this draft was insane. It felt like every other pick was being flipped to somebody, then shipped to somewhere else, and then dealt a third or fourth time, and... It was crazy because we ended up with so many of these prospects going to the podium, taking these photos with Adam Silver after they get drafted, wearing the wrong hat, which is really, really stupid considering that we in the age of Twitter and all this great reporting by guys like Adrian Wojnarowski and Sham Sarnia, we know where all these guys are going. Take, for example, that fourth pick. The Lakers trade that pick to the New Orleans Pelicans as part of the Anthony Davis trade. The Pelicans trade to the Hawks for number 8, number 17, and number 35, and another pick from the Cavaliers next season. But when the pick is made, the Lakers are the ones making the choice. We walk up to the podium, Adam Silver saying, the Lakers have selected DeAndre Hunter. He's going up to the podium taking a Lakers hat and the Hawks' Twitter account can't even acknowledge the fact that they have DeAndre Hunter for two weeks, which is absolutely absurd. And you want to know why this is? This goes back to the 1980s with a man named Ted Stepien. Who is Ted Stepien, might you ask? He was the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers in the 80s. And this dude, I mean, New Yorkers, you think James Dolan's a bad owner. You think that the Wilpons are bad owners. And they both are. This guy was far and away worse than any of them in terms of just pure incompetence. 
he had no idea what the hell he's doing. So he takes over the team. They're a decent team. And then he says, you know what? I'm trading all my picks for marginal players. So in a span of about four trades, he dealt away the Cavs' first-rounders from 1983 to 1986 for marginal players. Things got so bad, the NBA had to step in and prevent the Cavaliers from trading any more draft picks. It was that bad. Stepien ends up selling the team. The league actually had to give the Cavaliers first-round picks as compensation each of those four years to make the team attractive to buyers. So basically, in a league where there were 23 teams, there were 24 first-round picks because the league felt so bad for how Stepien screwed Cleveland up. And then they invent this rule in place. The rule that we all know is that a team cannot trade its first-round selection in back-to-back years. So, for example, with this Lakers trade, they could not trade their 2019 pick in order to be able to trade their pick in 2020. So they make the pick of DeAndre Hunter, and then after the draft is finalized, they're able to trade it. This satisfies the rule, but we've outgrown it. We really have. There's got to be a way to fix this because the amount of prospects going up with the wrong hats just looks absolutely ridiculous. It looks like a sideshow, and the NBA is too smart a league to let this keep going on. Maybe the problem is that free agency is second. The NFL is reversed. The free agency is first, and then we have the draft. Maybe we could do like the NFL does. Have the free agency period first, and then we have the draft. Then at least the Anthony Davis problem goes away, where we have those deals are made and teams are going in knowing what they need. And maybe, you know, a team like Brooklyn doesn't trade its first-round pick to create cap space. There's still a lot of time to figure this out, but they need to do something about it. Let's get to back to the draft now. Let's go to the Knicks at number three, getting R.J. Barrett. Expected pick, but a home run. They could not screw this pick up, and they didn't. R.J. Barrett, people forget, again, was the top guy going into college basketball this year. He got overshadowed by Zion, obviously. But his game is going to translate well to the pros. He scores. He has the ability to play well on defense. He can pass. He can rebound. His shot needs work, but he's a hardworking guy. He will get it figured out, and he has the mentality to handle the New York very well. He made it very clear. He refused to work out for anybody except the Knicks. He wanted to be here. He's here. Now, does he have the absolute superstar game-changing potential that Zion Williamson does? No. But he has all-star upside. And he definitely can be in that mix. And for a team that doesn't have a lot of building blocks, they got one. And that's huge. As far as the Nets are concerned, they trade out of the first round. They go from 27-31. That's fine with that. Your difference between time of play, you're getting a 27-31 and 31 is not that much. They end up getting Nick Claxton at 31, a nice big man. And they recruit a first-round pick in that deal. They get a pick from the Clippers in 2020 in that trade. That's nice because they gave up a one to the Hawks to get out of the Allen Crab contract next year. Now they get a pick back. They also clear more cast space for a run at Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Because remember, first-round picks come with cap holds. So until that player is signed, that pick's slot value is held on your cap. Second-rounders do not. So in theory... They have more money to throw at guys like Irving and Durant to try and build a super team in Brooklyn. 
Some other big winners. The Atlanta Hawks. I love the DeAndre Hunter trade. This They have a lot of young assets already. They need some proven defenders. DeAndre Hunter is that. And he's a three-year college player. He can shoot. He can defend. He can be an immediate rotation player for them. They also back it up with Cam Reddish at 10, who I love in terms of the upside value. And I said last week with Patrick Schmidt on this podcast that I thought that was the perfect fit for Cam Reddish. That team will let him grow and flourish alongside Trey Young, alongside Hunter, alongside John Collins. Give that team two, three years. The Atlanta Hawks could be a force in the East. The Boston Celtics, another big winner in my books. The first pick, not so much. Romeo Langford, big reach at 14. I think he's going to be a bust. But they hit their next two picks big time. Grant Williams, Carson Edwards. I also contribute to fan-sided, and I rated them as two of the biggest sleepers in college basketball were being undervalued by draft Knicks. Grant Williams, yes, there are size concerns with him. He's a tweener three, kind of four in the NBA. But he can do everything well. He's not dominant at one thing. Like, he's not an elite shooter. He's not an excellent defender. But he does a lot of everything very well. You know who came into the league like that? Draymond Green. Draymond Green is a second-round pick by the Warriors because he was a tweener at 6'7". People didn't think he could be a small ball four. And he's certainly one of the best players in the league. Is Grant Williams Draymond Green? No. But can he be a very good role player in this league for a long time? The kind of guy that playoff teams love to have coming off the bench on the second unit? Absolutely. They also get Carson Edwards out of Purdue, who, again, size the problem here. that He's only six foot. The question about his ability is a passer, but this guy is instant offense off the bench. We saw what he did in the NCAA tournament, basically carrying Purdue to the Elite Eight by himself. You want a guy off your second unit in the NBA who can just put up points in bunches. That's Carson Edwards, and the Celtics did a good job there. Another two big winners, the Pelicans, obviously. Besides fleecing the Lakers and laying Zion, they got a few more intriguing pieces for the rebuild. They get Jackson Hayes, the center. He can play alongside Zion down low. And Nikhil Alexander-Walker, who is one of these guards who fits the modern NBA very well. Again, They can let these guys grow together, and they can be a very scary force in a few years. The Memphis Grizzlies, the other big winner. They get John Morant at number two. I think of the three rookies at the top, I think he is the most likely to have an immediate impact in the NBA because his game translates so, so well. He's going to thrive in Memphis where he's going to have a lot of pressure there. And they get a steal down at 21, getting Brandon Clark out of Gonzaga. Again, another player college who is highly productive little questionable size but he defends well he'll be a good pairing down low with Jaron Jackson Jr their first round pick last year so another team that should be on the rise soon Memphis out west couple of losers too I want to point out number one the Cavs a team that ended up with three first round picks this year they took significant risks on every one of those picks Darius Garland at five the first one I mean Coming off a torn meniscus, so obviously there's injury questions to him. He has dynamic offensive potential, and I, that's a lot of fun in the NBA. You want a guy to score a bunches, he is that guy, but he cannot defend, and he's a bit redundant with last year's first-round pick, Colin Sexton. Playing those two in the backcourt together is going to lead to a lot of bad defense in Cleveland. They take Dylan Windler with their next pick down in the 20s. I like this guy. I think he's a productive player. 
He did a lot of things well at Belmont. Good lefty shooter, but not an elite athlete. His defense is questionable, and I think they overdrafted him at 26. They could have gotten him later on in the draft. I think they reached for him there, especially when you have guys on the board who had more prototypical NBA fits, like a Nick Claxton. And the last but not least, Kevin Porter Jr., they take trade to number 30 to get. All the talent in the world at USC underperformed there. There are questions about his work ethic and his coachability. Those are things I do not want on my NBA team. I don't care how talented you are, but if there are worries you're going to play hard, if you can be coached, I don't want you on my team. I'm sorry. That's a bad trio of picks from the Cavaliers. And the biggest loser, the Phoenix Suns, who again show they have no idea how to build a basketball team. They tank all year after getting DeAndre Ayton. Lottery luck did not go their way. They fall at number six. You're saying, okay, maybe you fell out of the lottery. It's not great, but you can still get Jared Culver, a nice wing, whatever. Or you can get the point guard you definitely need, Kobe White. What do they do? They trade down to 11. They don't even get an extra pick out of it. They get Dario Saric, a middling role player in the NBA at this point. Not the kind of guy we thought he was going to be. He was taking the lottery a couple of years ago. Okay, maybe they have a target down there they like. They take Cameron Johnson out of North Carolina at number 11. Now, don't get me wrong. I like Cam Johnson. He's a nice player. He can shoot from the outside. He's got decent length. But this is a guy you could have gotten in the second round. Most box had him at number 30 and barely making the first round. The Suns took him at 11. As a problem, I said, with the Mets in the past, that is not valuing your assets correctly. And that's a major issue in Phoenix. And I feel bad for the Suns fans because I feel bad for Devin Booker as well, potential star, stuck on a team that's going nowhere, has no clue what to do. Could be a lot of fun there. All right, that is my thoughts on the draft. I got a lot off my chest there. We're going to continue our NBA talk next. We preview the offseason with Ian Levy right after this. This is a monster haul for the New Orleans Pelicans to get two starters, Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, an outstanding young player in Josh Hart, and three first-round picks, including the number four overall pick in Thursday's draft, which allows New Orleans not only to draft Zion Williamson at one, but at number four, uh, get another you know potential very good young player. But for the Lakers, they paid a steep price to get the player they had to get Anthony Davis, now Davis, and LeBron James partner up in the West. Suddenly, the Lakers are a legitimate contender. All right, we are back on the Just End the Suffering podcast. You just heard ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski breaking down the big Anthony Davis trade that serves as the unofficial kickoff to NBA free agency, which could be wild this summer. Joining me today to help break down all the rumors, all the craziness that might be about to happening in the NBA is fan science NBA editor Ian Levy. Ian, welcome. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Not a problem. Ian, let's go, Let's dive right into with that Anthony Davis trade. That's been rumored for weeks now about him going to Lakers. Now that we have seen it happen, what was your first thoughts when you saw it? Um, I mean, I certainly wasn't surprised that, yeah, like you said, the rumors had been circulating for a while. It seemed like it was just a matter of when they would finally get it done. Um, but yeah, I, I think the Pelicans did a fantastic job for themselves. I think, uh, you know, it's about as good a haul as, as they could have gotten. Um, 
you know, maybe uh, if they could have uh, pried Jason Tatum away from uh, from Boston, that sort of gives them a, a, a more reliable piece moving forward than than either Ingram or Lonzo Ball. But I think they did nice uh, getting a lot of assets, a lot of useful pieces, and I think it'll be really helpful for Zion Williamson to have some scaffolding around him next year. You know, he's not going to go into a situation where he's going to be asked to do everything himself. You know, they have uh, they have defenders, they have shooters, they have other ball handlers. Um, you know, he can really focus on what he does well and and sort of slowly build up the rest. Yeah, I was excited for New Orleans. I saw that hole. I was basically the Lakers' future looked pretty good before LeBron got there. With all the picks they had, and all the young players they had. Now they basically gave it all to the Pelicans, plus picks, plus a pick swap. I mean, if you're a New Orleans fan, I know losing Davis stinks. You got to feel pretty good about how you ended up. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think their future is bright, um, and they they get the added bonus bonus of. Um, you know, with these draft assets, they get to sort of root for the Lakers to be bad over the next couple of years. You know, they have a they have a stake in the Lakers' future as well, which you know can be fun. It'll definitely be fun to keep track of. Let's go back to the Lakers now. Obviously, they have Davis, they have LeBron, they have Kyle Kuzma, and not much else in that roster. So, where do you think they're going next from here? I think they're going to try and fill out that roster. I mean, there were there were reports that they sort of. Uh, didn't really understand the cap implications uh, and uh, have sort of backed themselves into a hole where they uh, probably barring some sort of, you know, uh, ultra dramatic, uh, ultra complicated uh, gymnastics, financial gymnastics. They're probably not going to have another max cap slot to offer anybody else. And um, I don't know. I mean, uh, other than uh, other than Kawhi Leonard, I don't think uh, either Durant or, or Clay Thompson is, is going to be playing much uh, in the upcoming season. I don't think there's anything out there who really changes this for the Lakers. I don't think they're really a championship contender. I mean, there's just there's no depth on the team. Um, you know, LeBron and Anthony Davis obviously have two of the top ten players in the league, but you still need to have three other players on the floor at the same time. I don't think Kuzma really changes anything for them. Um, you know, I think they're they're probably somewhere in the muck in the middle of the Western Conference, and um, you know, it's it's difficult. You look at this trade; it's you know, it's sort of a trade they have to make. Um, but I, I don't think they're necessarily in a in a much better position than they were before. Yeah, I don't think so either. We'll, we'll leave them alone for a minute. Let's go to the b- other big headline right now, which is Kevin Durant, who his free agency is swirling for months now. Obviously, gets complicated with the Achilles tear. And obviously, he's going to miss most of next season, but there are a lot of teams still lining up to give him a max deal. So where do you think he ends up going? I guess I, I would lean towards New York, um, you know, either the Knicks or the Nets. Um you know, I, I'm I'm bad at this prognostication game. I'm bad at, at making these guesses, but I think you have to put some stock in the fact that the the Knicks rumors started a long time ago and that they've really hung on. Um, and it's you know it's something that sort of keeps coming up. People saying they're hearing from everybody that he's expected to go to the Knicks, and you know the offices for for his uh, production company moving to New York, I think is is pretty significant too. So. You know, how much you trust his, uh, you know, the reports of him wanting to, to play with Kyrie because it seems like Kyrie is going to Brooklyn um, versus, you know, maybe he wants to try and, and go out on his own uh, with New York. Um, but, yeah, my, my guess would be he's going to end up with one of those two teams. Now, would if considering he has this Achilles injury, he's going to be 32 when he comes back. Would, and I'm a Nick fan. I'm terrified about giving him a contract and <laughs> saying that he's going to be like maybe 60% of the player he is and just be a complete bust for that money. Should I be that worried about him? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, it's hard to say without knowing sort of the severity of the injury and I, without having that medical expertise. But we've seen guys come back uh, from Achilles injuries and be reasonably effective. He, you know, he's not a guy who I think relies on explosive athleticism. Um, you know, he'd, he'd be an overpay uh, on a max deal if he, you know, continues to decline. But his, his skill set, I think, is going to continue to age, you know, as essentially a seven-footer who can handle the ball and, and can shoot from anywhere and, um, you know, can protect the rim. He might end up having to sort of be a full-time power forward from here on out. But, uh, you know, I, I think he's he's a player whose game is going to age well, even if he's a little more limited. And, um, you know, I, I don't, he doesn't scare me as much as some of the other things out there, some of the other guys out there, especially, you know, he's someone who doesn't have a sort of an extended track record of injuries. You know, I look at actually look at Anthony Davis and, you know, his track record of health and injury scares me a little bit more than Durant's, even with this Achilles injury. Yeah, so let's let's give me make me high for a second. Let's say I'm a Nick fan. Let's say they do end up getting Durant. So like, if they do get him, what else do you think they're gonna end up doing this summer? You know, I think they're gonna try for somebody else. I think um, you know one of the things that's complicated with with the injury is both you know this this idea of teams maybe not will, be, being willing to offer Durant the same amount of money, or maybe some teams that that normally would have been interested in him are gonna back off. We also have this added component of, you know, guys wanting to team up with him and the uncertainty that the injury gives for them, you know, would that scare somebody off if he decides to go to New York and maybe originally, you know, Jimmy Butler or something like that was interested in going to New York and playing with Durant. Maybe he's a little bit scared off now because he's not sure what Durant's going to going to be a year down the road. Um, and so it, it wouldn't surprise me if, if Durant ends up with the Knicks. It wouldn't surprise me if, if that's kind of the big move of the summer. And, uh, you know, they're taking another swing at free agency next year. They're using this year to mostly kind of bring up, bring along the young guys, give them, you know, as many opportunities as they can. And so, um, you know, maybe some of those pieces are getting shopped as they get to the trade deadline and they're looking for some more, uh, you know, kind of veteran pieces to surround Durant and, uh, you know, or maybe they're seeing who's who's ready. You know, is Mitchell Robinson ready to start at center? You know, deep in the playoffs. Um, you know, a year from now. Yeah, the thing that terrifies me is that if for some reason they whiff on Durant, and if they, he goes to Brooklyn, for example, like they have all this cap space, they have to spend up to ninety percent of the cap. I'm terrified this team will do something stupid and just give it to guys who don't deserve max contracts. Like, do you think the Knicks would do something like that? You think they're going to throw a bunch of money into one and two year deals just to sort of buy, just buy the time with the cap space so they can have it free again? I think they've been re- I think they've been reasonably smart. Uh, you know, obviously it's hard. They have this legacy of of uh, not great decision making, but I think they've made some smart decisions the past couple years. You know, past year or two. It looks like this new new regime's committed to doing things differently. Um, and I think, you know, you never want to say never, but you, you know, you, you you would think that they could look at the track record of the past and see how that's been a mistake. Uh, you know, going all in on on Plan B, and uh, yeah, I, I would hope that they would be be smart enough to invest in you know one or two year deals, use up the space they have to, and try and roll it over for the next year, or you know, spend it on assets that they know they can flip at the deadline or going into next summer. Yeah, let's go to the other New York team, the Nets, who right now they're pretty poised to get Kyrie Irving because that's I know he changes his mind every ten, ten minutes, but as of right now, it sounds like he's going to Brooklyn, and that may come at the cost of D'Angelo Russell, a twenty-three-year-old All-Star point guard. Do you think if you're Sean Mark, you would make that swap and let Russell go to sign Irving? Honestly, I think they're both really problematic, and it's you know it's kind of six of one, half dozen of the other. I think um, you know Irving's clearly a, a better player. Um, 
but he also comes with all of this sort of, um, you know, emotional baggage and, and locker room stuff and, you know, this, this history of, of sort of, you know, speaking uh, not carefully and, and uh, you know, bringing some blowback with, with all sorts of comments. So, yeah, I think, you know, if I was a Nets fan or, or somebody in that front office, that would bother me a little bit, you know, as thinking from a fan perspective. I feel like I might rather, um, you know, kind of keep rooting for, for the young team that, that's kind of, um, you know, grown together as opposed to bringing in a guy who hasn't always demonstrated himself to, to being the most loyal or, or uh, you know, the most committed or the most reliable Um but I also think, you know, losing D'Angelo Russell is not a, is not a huge deal if they're going to get Kyrie Irving in. You know, Russell had a great season. He's come a long way. Um, he's still a really, really inefficient uh, volume scorer, um, you know, and a, a guy who's not a great defender. So there, there's room to grow there, but it's, it's, I don't think you're losing um, necessarily an elite, an elite player if D'Angelo Russell walks. You know, I'm, I'm not a Nets fan. I'm going to put this out there very clearly. But if I'm a Nets fan, I want them to make this move for the right reason. Is it, I think it's got me win. That would be it. But if I'm making this move because I want to take the headlines away from the Knicks, I don't think that's the right play because New Yorkers care about winning. They don't really care about who has the back page in the offseason. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's it's kind of funny. I, to, to be honest, I'm a little surprised at the Nets being so um, so eager to sign Kyrie Irving. I mean, if that really is what's going on, it just um, – you know, they dug themselves such a hole with that Kevin Garnett trade, that Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce trade a few years ago, and they had to be so careful and meticulous and so focused in, in you know, taking these incremental steps to, to pull, pull themselves out. Um, and this, you know, signing Kyrie Irving sort of seems like the opposite of, of all of that. You know, it's, it's a risky, it's a big swing, um, I you know, He's as talented as anybody in the league, but I don't think you can say he's proven, um, you know, that he's he's the kind of guy who's going to single-handedly put you in championship contention. You know, I think there's there's definitely a, a big drop-off between signing, uh, you know, a, a, a healthy Kevin Durant or Kawhi Leonard, and then you know, going down to Kyrie Irving. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It, it seems like the kind of move that the you know the the previous front office made, and the kind of move that got them in trouble. Yeah, let's go to Kawhi Leonard for a minute. The biggest free agent on the market, and obviously the healthiest one. He just wins a championship in Toronto, and basically I think it's come down to two teams for him. It's either staying in Toronto or going to the Clippers, which has been rumored for a while because he wants to go home to L.A. So do you really think he would bolt from the Raptors right after winning the title? I think it's clear that he will do what he wants, and I don't think he particularly cares about legacy or reputation. I think he... um, and I think you look at what's what's happened with him the the past couple of years, and it, he seems like a guy who's kind of you know he's kind of immune to to uh, you know fans' opinions. And, um, and watch how that that ended in San Antonio, and you know he didn't seem particularly determined to try and win the the battle of public opinion or whatever. You know he was just you know ready to do what was best for him. And so yeah, I think it'll come down to. Uh, you know, we'll see the decision, you know, whether he wants to, um, whether he wants to keep winning titles or whether there's some other things that are um, important to him, you know, uh, in terms of quality of life and where he wants to live and, the, and those sorts of things. And I, I certainly don't think one is, is better than the other. And for what it's worth, you know, it's, um, 
I don't think staying in Toronto guarantees him another ring or, or more rings. Um, I think probably the odds of, of getting another ring are better there than they are with the Clippers. But, um, you know, I, I don't think you can draw a line as clear as, well, if he leaves Toronto, he doesn't care about winning. But I, th- I think we'll see that balance, how important, um, you know, quality of life and, and some other things are for him. All right, let's do a quick rapid fire game here. I'll give you a top, give you a list of the top free agents. You give me like one, pl- the place you think they will end up. So, let's start. Let's start at the top. Uh, Durant. Uh, I think he probably ends up with the Knicks. Okay, uh, Kawhi Leonard. I think he probably stays in Toronto. Okay, uh, Kyrie to Brooklyn. Yeah, I think he ends up in Brooklyn. Clay Thompson, and most people think he's going to stay with the Warriors. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think he's going to stay in, in Golden State. Uh, Jimmy Butler. I think he stays in Philadelphia too. That's interesting because I've heard a lot of like various opinions about what Butler wants to do. Yeah, he, and he's a guy who seems like he could change his mind uh, at a moment's <laughs> notice. But um, yeah, it seemed like they came a long way over the course of that season. You know, there was some some initial kind of strife with him and, and Joel Embiid and sharing the ball and stuff when he got there. But seemed like that team really came together. Uh, I think they were so close and. You know, the fact that they lost to the Raptors the way they did and then that the Raptors went out and win the title, I think that uh, I think that maybe will make them feel closer than perhaps they actually were. Okay. Uh, Kemba Walker, I know he's a Laker target. Do you think he ends up there or do you think he stays in Charlotte? Uh, maybe I'm being a hopeless romantic, but I think he stays in Charlotte. Yeah, I would love to see that. I know he said he wants to take less than the Supermax to stay, and that would be nice to see him show a little loyalty to that, to that franchise. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of hard to imagine on a bunch of different fronts because it's, you know, it's not a great basketball situation. But, um, yeah, I don't know. There's something about that, I think, that, that that's the right spot for him. Uh, DeMarcus Cousins. Man, I have no idea. I think he's going to end up somewhere strange uh, on a very – I think he's going to end up on another sort of short-term, uh, heavy, front-loaded deal. I think maybe he gets a – a one plus one or a two year deal, you know, not guaranteed on the second year from somebody. I think I don't I don't think he did anything with the Warriors, you know, injuries aside, health aside, I don't think he did anything this season to sort of quell the concerns about how he fits in on a good team and, you know, how much he really raises or lowers a, a, a playoff team's ceiling. I think he's a prime Nick target if they miss out on Durant need to spend the money. I think that's a one plus one makes a lot of sense for him there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, personally, I would. I think that would be sort of a bummer for the Knicks. I don't think that would be a great situation uh, for their young players. But you know, it would certainly help them. Uh, you know, with with uh, energy and enthusiasm and that kind of stuff. Certainly make them more interesting. <laughs> okay, Tobias Harris. Uh, man, I think he might stay in Philadelphia too. I know they've got some tight uh, financial stuff to figure out, but um, he's he's another one. Um, yeah, he's another one where I think it makes a lot of sense. I feel like that team maybe bonded a little bit. And, and again, I think they were really close and, and maybe would like to take another shot. I guess maybe he's more likely to stay in Philadelphia than Butler is, but we'll see. Uh, D'Angelo Russell. Man, I don't know. Yeah, I, I've got no I've got no clue on him. I guess he makes some sense. Uh, I mean, you can sort of look at these teams and, and point out these obvious holes that at point guard, uh, you know, the Suns um, sort of messed themselves up taking on Aaron Baines, and I think the I think the last thing I looked at was that they might have to stretch Tyler Johnson if they want to sign uh, D'Angelo Russell. Um, that's a possibility. It's hard for me to imagine anybody willingly going to that team the way they're uh, the way they're working right now. 
Uh, I suppose Indiana is a possibility too, although I'm not sure how much better he really makes them. Yeah, I was about to say Indiana makes sense because I know they it's hard for them to get like big time talent to that to that market. Yeah. So, so maybe getting him on a restricted free agent contract if they don't and that's what let him walk that makes sense there. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's a possibility. And does Chris Middleton stay in Milwaukee? Yeah, I think so. Uh, same thing. I think they they developed some chemistry. I think he feels good about uh, what they did. I think there's some unfinished business in Milwaukee. Okay, last one from me. Last question. It's not a specific player. Do you have a under-the-radar kind of guy you think can make a big impact on his new team? Uh, yeah, I think uh, I think Bogdanovich really uh, impressed me with Indiana last year. He's a free agent. Um, I'm not I'm not sure what the Pacers' plans are going to be in free agency. They have a lot of options, a lot of different ways they can go. And uh, But he was so good uh, after Oladipo went down, really stepped up, took on a larger ball-handling load. Um, he had kind of been more of a spot up sh- sh- uh, threat in- to that point, but you know he he worked as a primary creator for Indiana for long stretches, and and I think he's a guy who you, uh, you get him on a reasonable deal, plug him into a second unit, you know, on a on a really strong uh, contending team. I think he could, you know, he's a guy who could make a difference. All right, there you have it. that was Ian Levy on the NBA free agency preview. Ian, thanks for all the time. Before I let you go, do you want everybody know how to find on social media and some of the stuff you're up to? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Hickory High, and uh, you can always uh, check out all our great stuff at fansided.com. All right, Ian, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks a lot, Mike. All right, that was Ian Levy from Fanside breaking down NBA free agency. Up next, we're going to shift from the hardwood to the grass courts of Wimbledon. We're going to preview Wimbledon with Veronica Bruno right after this. We are back here on the Justin Suffering Podcast. That call is her ESPN's Chris Fowler calling Novak Djokovic's win at the Gentleman Singles, the 2018 Wimbledon Championships. My guest today for the Wimbledon preview, somebody we spoke to a couple weeks ago for the French Open, and that was very popular. So I'm happy to have back with us fan size Veronica Bruno. Veronica, welcome back. How are you? Thanks. Thanks for having me back. Not a problem. I'm very happy to talk tennis, and people, people apparently love the tennis, so I'm glad that we can talk about the Wimbledon today. Oh, I'm very excited. I mean, it's been um, uh, Sunday's matches, all the finals that took place was a very exciting day because there were a lot of uh, new names on the women's side winning. And, of course, Federer just won another title um, on Sunday. And then uh, you had Feliciana Lopez, um, who's a 37-year-old, was a wild-card entry at Queen's Club, and he won, which was another big surprise. So it was, uh, you know, all the warm-up events, to Wimbledon um, were a really, really exciting day of tennis, of a, a huge variety of tennis, from young players to uh, much older players. Yeah. And now they're all contenders at Wimbledon. Yes, they are. And Wimbledon, in case people are not aware who listen to this podcast, it's, it's unlike, unlike the French, it's played on clay. It is played on grass. Can you tell the listeners what makes playing on grass so unique for tennis? Well, grass is faster. The ball really flies off the racket. Um, it will suit a player with a with a big serve, a superior serve, such as Roger Federer uh, or like Pete Sampras in the past. 
It can also be pretty precarious. I don't know if you saw any of the uh, warm-up events at uh, Queens Club and the other ones. Uh, you saw some of the a couple players falling because if the grass, if the greens get wet, then the players will tend to slip more. So uh, clay will slow down the ball, uh, and uh, grass can be is just it's faster and and kind of more dangerous in some ways. That's good to know. Definitely something to be watching for as we watch Wimbledon over, over the next couple of weeks. So let's go to the women's side first. Let's start with the hottest player on the women's tour right now, which is uh, French Open champion Ashley Barty. She just got the number one in the world after winning the uh, Tuno event at Halley, and she's actually at her best on grass. People don't realize she was a junior champion here back in 2015. Do you think she can make it two slams in a row right now and win at Wimbledon? Absolutely. Uh, Barty's won her three titles on hard court, clay, and grass tournaments this year. So interestingly, her variety game suits grass uh, beautifully. I mean, she's in fantastic position to to get a second slam. She's also coming into the slam having earned the world number one ranking. So she's uh, her, her mental fortitude is outrageous. I mean, she's took some time off to play cricket, and then she came back with a brand-new attitude and a new love of the game. And she won, uh, to give you an example of her kind of uh, mental strength, she won her first maiden slam on clay, which is basically her least familiar surface. And she was quoted as saying that she's like learning about the surface, and she goes ahead and wins the slam. That's what kind of outrageous player she is. She's proven that she's the one to beat on any surface at any event, and she can bounce back even when she's down. So she, in my opinion, she's the clear favorite. That's very interesting because the way you describe her felt like a lot like how you would describe Serena Williams back even a couple of years ago. And she's had a very disappointing year, Serena. She hasn't played a ton due to injuries. Went out the third round. I know. Yeah, went out the third round, Roland Garros. So what do you think we're going to see out of her here? Because, again, I don't think she's going to do very well just based on track record recently. Well, she's gotten to, uh, she got to the final last year. And this was uh, shortly after giving birth and uh, health complications which is amazing. Uh, she's got, she's won 23 slam titles and really nothing replaces the actual experience of playing a grand slam final, which is why the experience of handling that kind of high octane pressure is invaluable for the great Titans in tennis. And, uh, you know, even if, if these amazing players, don't, even if like the big players in tennis don't advance to other tournaments, you'll see their skills of handling the best of five or best of three kick in at the Grand Slam level. So there's always a chance. Serena will always have a chance. But, you know, she's had earlier exits this year. And going out of uh, the French Open in the third round was a shock. So, but Wimbledon is a much more successful slam for Serena than the French. So her chances are greater, but she's definitely not the front runner. Yeah, she's definitely not. Another one who is probably not going to be the front runner either is Naomi Osaka, who hasn't done well on grass in the past. Just, she was just got upset over the weekend at a tune-up event in, out in Birmingham. And do you think she can do well here at Wimbledon, or do you think she's poised for another early exit? Because she just went out in the third at Roland Garros, too. I really feel like her taking over the number one, uh, I feel like uh, uh, Ashley Barty taking over the number one spot from Osaka. They're developing this little a rivalry, or at least the beginning seeds of a rivalry. Um, with Naomi Osaka is really going through an awkward phase right now. She got rid of her coach at the beginning of the year, 
who was incidentally Serena Williams' um, old hitting partner, and he had helped her achieve her first two slams. And so she's still working out the kinks with a new coach. I think that their relationship is going to start producing results again. But And her game is still stellar. But it seems to be more of like a mental focus issue at the moment. I think she's placing too much pressure on herself at such a young age. And she's already achieved a lot in rapid succession. But she started, she started thinking, oh, you know, I need to chase this calendar year slam. And that just seems to have been an unrealistic goal for her. And it's interesting because, you know, Federer was uh, interviewed after one of his matches in Hall, and he had said, you know, that to, he was giving advice to Osaka, saying you can't win them all. It's just not possible. And I think that she's going to... Uh, You'll see her winning again, but I, I do think that, you know, she, she withdrew from a, a interview after one of her matches that she lost, and that's, that kind of behavior is, is out, of, it's out of character for her. I mean, she's a very humble person. She's a, a likable person. So it'll be interesting to see how she kind of, like, mentally gets her focus back. I don't see her as a front runner at Wimbledon, but she surprised me in the past, so you never know. Yeah, so as far as the women's side is concerned, we have Barty as the favorite, and Osaka and Serena are always threats. But who else on the women's side think can be a factor here? Well, there's Angelique Kerber, who won last year, and she still is looking for a title this year. But she has made a final, and she's playing great, and she always thrives at Wimbledon. There's also uh, Pet- Petra Kvitova, who's always my favorite for the title. She won it twice in the past. Uh, she was in the Aussie final. She doesn't have a very good uh, percentage when getting to Grand Slams, but she's and she pulled out of grass season early to, for extra recuperation. But she's already won titles this year, and she's still on this you know high of the, her Cinderella comeback success after being attacked in her home. So she'll always have the home court advantage. Her will to bounce back is ad- admirable, but you know now. I'm really excited about this whole crop of young American women who are just on fire at the moment. I mean, you saw Sophia Kennan, who goes by the name of Sonia. She just won at Mallorca on grass, and that was a big surprise. Uh, she took out uh, Belinda Bencic, who was favored to win, and actually sat with three championship points, but still lost the match. Um, and then there's also, you know, and, and of course, uh, Sonia Kennan took out Serena, the French. But there's also teenager Amanda Anisimova and, of course, Madison Keys and Sloan Stevens. But besides the Americans that I'm excited about, there's Julia Gorgas, there's Petra Martis, there's Karolina Pliskova, who was a former world number one just recently. And, you know, even though Benchich went out in Mallorca, she's still a contender on grass. So, and you never can count out Venus Williams, who's, you know, the, Wimbledon is her most successful Grand Slam, and Garbina Muguruza beat her a couple years ago. So those two are always going to be contenders as well. Yeah, a lot of interesting names there, so they're definitely fun to track. The men's side, before we get into the players, there's one big rule change I want to discuss here with you, which is after last year, after the epic uh, Kevin Anderson-John Isner semifinal that went over two days and <laughs> went to 26-24 in the, in the fifth set, Wimbledon has now put a rule in that the they're finally going to use a tiebreak after 12-12 in the fifth set. How do you think this will impact the men's side specifically? Well, I think the new tiebreak rule makes a lot of sense, first of all. It's really all done in fairness for the sport. Once you get to the final, it ensures that not one player will arrive having had to play an exhaustive 
seemingly endless match, like Kevin Anderson had to against John Isner, that 26-24 final set in a semifinal, and then he had to turn around and face a rested, recuperated Novak Djokovic was, like, ridiculous. But, um, and then Isner was also involved in the longest match at Wimbledon as well. It took over three days and went to 70-68. I don't know if you've seen the HBO mockumentary, uh, Seven Days in Hell. It's completely hilarious, and it's based on that that one match. So I highly recommend it, and I think the new tiebreak rule is going to be terrific. I mean, in many ways, Wimbledon is actually quite ahead of the French Open in terms of, you know, they've had the roof on there. They're incorporating ways to make the, the matches fairer for each player. It's all in the mindset of making it better for each player. So I think it's, it's all in the right direction. Yeah, that sounds great to hear. And obviously, the big beneficiary of that exhaustive match last year was Novak Djokovic, who won Wimbledon and, as Chris Fowler said at the top on the clip there, that he was at the height of his powers. So he has been playing well again, won the U.S. Open, won Australia, lost in the semifinals at Roland Garros. What do you think Novak's chances are of repeating? Oh, sure he can. I mean, any of the big three can win any of the slams at any time. That's part of their mystique. You know, they can act like gentlemen and pinnacles of grace and humility in real life, but make no mistake, they are absolute predators on the court. And, and Novak Djokovic is just like that. I mean, they believe like no one else does. They've been doing it, winning Grand Slams for decades. Uh, their killer instinct just kicks in when it comes to the Grand Slam level. And, and Djokovic, you know, he did very well at the French Open. So he's got a great chance to come back uh at Wimbledon, I mean, he's been taking some time off and he hasn't played any grass warm-up events, but for the big three in tennis, the Titans in tennis, it doesn't really matter. I mean, they have all these new physios, diets, sports teams are keeping these guys in many ways, you know, fitter than the younger players. So when you combine their killer experience with the competitive fitness, it's no wonder that Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer just keep adding to their combined 53 slam haul. Yep, they have lured over that sport for years, especially Roger Federer, who is the king of grass, like Nadal is the king of clay. He loves Wimbledon. He's won here eight times, most recently in 2017. Hasn't won a slam in a while. I do think, though, I don't know if it's just me, I feel like he's due for another one. I feel like this might be a good spot for him to get another slam here. Oh, I think so, too. I mean, Roger has the absolute best game to suit the surface. He's got the brilliant commanding serve. Every stunning shot in the book, the speed of the grass suits him, uh, but does he have the same mind, say, like a, a Rafa or a Noel? I mean, it, it, it depends. You know, sometimes Roger can get lost in his own head and the doubts come. But he's also recently demonstrated an uncanny ability to defy the odds and show his own killer comeback instinct. You know, when he was down in the, uh, in the fifth set of the 2017 Australian final with Rafa, you know, he, came, he won five games in a row to come back, and nobody thought that he would mentally be able to bounce back. That's, that's a Rafa move. So, you know, he can surprise people when he can, but, you know, he just won at Hall. He's the only male player to win three ATP singles titles this year. There's no injury concerns, and he looks fully fit. In my opinion, he's the front runner, but it all depends on his serve. When you see it dip, so does his confidence. That's good to know, so keep an eye on that while we're watching Wimbledon. You mentioned Rafa in, in that segment with Roger as well. Rafa has said publicly that he likes to win Wimbledon more because he grew up wanting to win Wimbledon because of the history and the prestigious event. He hasn't won it since 2010, so what do you think he has to do to win another Wimbledon title this year? 
Well, he's he's come very close, and he seems to get close every year. I mean, there's always a chance with Rafa. He overpowers the fact that grass is his least suited surface with his, his mental fortitude. I mean, no one, absolutely no one has to come from behind predator mind like Rafa. He's not a front runner, but his belief always will place him as one of the biggest contenders. He's also over his injuries this year, so he's in excellent position to maybe make this year his year to win Wimbledon. I mean, usually when he comes to the grass season, he's already exhaustively won, you know, three or four titles on clay, and he kind of built himself up slowly during the clay season. You know, he didn't really win until the very end of it, so he may actually be a little bit more rested and, and uh, recuperated going heading into grass. So he's got as good of a chance as Federer and Djokovic, although I, I do put Federer in the, as the front runner right now, but really it's anyone's game between those three, to be honest. Yeah, it sounds about right to me. The big three of the favorites, but one guy who has my attention right now, and I think somebody who's going to be coming on big in the next few years, is uh, the, the uh, young Greek player, Stefanos Zizipas. So he, he's coming up strong. He already has beaten wins over Federer. A lot of people have said he is like a young Federer. How do you think he's going to do this year? Here, well, when it comes to Grand Slams, it doesn't. I'll be honest; I don't think that he's quite ready. Um, he's fabulously talented, but again, when it comes to the younger generation of players, there's like this ki- distinct killer instinct to believe they can win at the zenith of the sport. All the talent in the world still can't overcome nerves and mental belief or lack thereof. And the same thing with Alexander Zverev. I mean, we've been talking about him being on the cusp of winning a Grand Slam for a couple of years now, and every time he gets to one, you know, he just mentally unravels. So these these players have a lot of talent. I love watching Sissy Plus. I mean, he's so talented, but it, but they tend to lose when you least expect it, and that's what's the most disappointing about that generation. But, you know, 50 Pass has also um, thrown down the gauntlet by saying that, you know, the big three is making tennis boring. But, you know, if you're going to say something like that, you got to back it up with a, a big win. So everyone's kind of hoping that he'll put his, um, you know, that he'll have the game to, to back that up as well. Yeah, he's somebody who I think needs to step up for this sport. And as far as the men's size is concerned, we have our big three set as the favorites. Do you have any sleepers you think can make a deep run here? Well, my favorite sleeper at the moment is Matteo Berrettini. He's an Italian who just cracked the top 20, and he's just won at Stuttgart. But he's been, like, rapidly rising, and no one saw this coming. So he's doing very, very well on grass. So he's my absolute favorite for a surprise at Wimbledon this year. There's always Kevin Anderson, who does well there and made the final last year. But I'm also kind of liking Stan Wawrinka. He's another 30-something-year-old. Uh, he got to the quarters at the French. He had a, a terrible injury uh, about a year ago, and he's been building himself back up. But he's already cracked the top 20 as well. And, uh, you know, he, hasn't, he doesn't have a good track record on grass. But he's brought in a new coach to help him with that. So you never know. And he's got—he's another one of those players who has a mentally stronger mind than perhaps his gifts will allow. So men's tennis just seems to be a 30-something game right now, you know. But on the young side, there's also Canada's Felix Auger-Aliassime, who is 
absolutely on fire. Uh, Daniel Medvedev, Feliciano Lopez, he's another 37-year-old. He just won a Queen's Club. No one saw that coming. He was a wild card entry. So, uh, you know, you got some... You, you've got some surprise winners in during grass season right now who uh, can make some surprise inroads into the, the grass Grand Slam. And, of course, you've got Andy Murray, who's back playing double. So how exciting is that? That's he a, just won a Queen's Club as well with Kelly Lopez. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. I'm happy Murray's actually getting in, in the mix here a little bit. Hopefully he's able to do something at Wimbledon. That would be great. But last thing before I let you go. Let's make some picks here. Who you have winning the men's and women's events here? I got to put my money on Roger Federer for the men, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm apprehensive to do that because whenever I predict he's going to win, he sometimes has a way of, of disappointing. But he just looks so good at Hall, and he is fully fit, and and uh, he he just looks too strong. So I would I'm going to go with with Federer for Wimbledon. Um, and then for the women, I that's that's really hard. I mean, I, I I'm going to have to say uh, Barty. The Ash the Barty party is continuing on. Her gra- her she's won so much, but actually her game suits grass the best. So this, she's now coming into her greatest strength, and she's the new world number one. I think that she's the absolute one to beat at this tournament. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you on the men. I'm going to take Federer, but I'm going to take one of your sleepers or the women. I'm going to take Patrick Kvitova. I feel like the number one being pressure on Barty is going to I feel like it'll weigh on her this event. She might have a slightly subpar finish. I'm going to take Patrick Kvitova to win Wimbledon again. Oh, wouldn't that be a throw? I think I, I don't think there will be a dry eye in the audience. I mean, I think the crowd will just go in, in nuts if she wins. It would be fantastic. And what a comeback story that would be. That would be a hell of a comeback story. Veronica Bruno, thank you for all the time once again. Before I let you go, do you want everybody to know how to follow you on social media and some of the stuff you're up to? Oh, sure. Well, you can find me on, on Twitter and Instagram, uh, Veronica E. Bruno. You know, follow me. I will be tweeting every day on tennis and uh, keeping up with uh, all, the, all the matches. So give me a shout-out. Yeah, be sure to follow Veronica's work on Fanside as well. She is the number one tennis person for them as well. Oh, absolutely. All right, Veronica, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me again. There we have it. That was Veronica Bruno on the Wimbledon Championships. That event starts on July 1st on ESPN, the family of networks. Up next, we go our seventh inning stretch. The Tampa Bay Rays are toying with a timeshare with Montreal. What does that entail? We'll get into it in our seventh inning stretch right after this. All right, we are back on this week's seventh inning stretch. And I wanted to start this off here. We're going to talk about some dynamic duos. We've had a lot of great dynamic duos in the world over our course of our history. We had Peanut Butter and Jelly, Batman and Robin, Bert and Ernie. Can Tampa Bay and Montreal join that list for the Rays? And let me start off, give you a little context. In case you lived under a rock last week, you did not see this story from ESPN's Jeff Passan. Major League Baseball has given the Tampa Bay Rays permission to explore an idea where they can play games in both Tampa Bay and Montreal. And that was one of the last things I ever thought would happen in baseball. A little bit of an explanation here with Tampa Bay. They're a very good baseball team. 
run very well. Over the last decade, they've been a consistent winner. Right now, they're in second place in the American League East and on the clear favorites to get a wild card this year. But they play in a dump of a stadium in Tropicana Field down in St. Petersburg. And I like this fact, this team wins consistently. They run very well. And they win without a lot of money. They Their $65 million payroll is the second lowest in the major leagues. And they're yet they're right in the mix every year. They cannot get fans into the building. They average just over 15,000 fans a game. And that is second worst in the league. I have only their state mates, the rebuilding Marlins. Now, the Rays have been trying for years to build a new stadium. Last year, they had thought they had a deal to build one in Ybor City, a suburb of actual Tampa, not St. Petersburg. That deal falls through. So, basically... Now we're thinking about radical ideas to keep Tampa Bay viable. And one of them is the idea that the Rays would basically split their season in two. Start the year in Tampa Bay where the weather is warm and then finish it up in Montreal, which has not had a team since the Expos left town in 2004. Both of these states have to build new stadiums for the Rays because the Rays are not staying in Tropicana. The thinking here is that Tampa would save a lot of money building a stadium in Tampa by not having to put a roof on it, by playing early season games down there before the weather turns into a thunderstorm every night, which it usually does in the middle of summer in Florida. Whereas Montreal, they get to build a stadium. They would be able to sell a half-season plan to the Montreal fan base, which has been dying for baseball. The Blue Jays play exhibition games there every year, and they sell out Olympic Stadium every year. Now, the idea of splitting two cities, it's not new to sports. The Expos, as I mentioned, they did this towards the end of their run. They played 22 games a year over the last couple of years in the early 2000s in Puerto Rico. I saw a test for all that market, and they ended up moving up to Washington. The Kings did it in the NBA in the 70s. They split time between Kansas City and Omaha. That didn't last very long. The Packers, a historic, prestigious NFL franchise, until 94, they split their games between Milwaukee and Green Bay playing half their games at County Stadium and the other half at Lambeau. The Islanders right now, they're splitting their season between Brooklyn and Long Island as they, until they wait for their arena on Long Island they've built out by the uh, Belmont Racetrack. Okay, that's all well and good, but let's hear what St. Petersburg Mayor Rick Kreisman had to say at a press conference last week when presented a question about this idea of the race splitting time between Tampa Bay and Montreal. So today's announcement did not come as a surprise to me. But I know many in my city and probably throughout the nation were taken aback to learn that such an idea is being formally proposed. So I want to be crystal clear. The Rays cannot explore playing any Major League Baseball games in Montreal or anywhere else for that matter prior to 2028 without reaching a formal memorandum of understanding with the city of St. Petersburg. And ultimately, such a decision is up to me. And I have no intention of bringing this idea to our city council to consider. In fact, I believe this is getting a bit silly. You know what? Mayor Creason is right. This is getting very, very silly. Number one, he's right. The Rays have a ironclad lease with the city of St. Petersburg through 2027. So... They need city approval to play somewhere else, and they're not getting it anytime soon. So this idea is not happening. 
Number two, the whole idea of building stadiums. And we are in an age now where it's ridiculous that we're spending taxpayer money to build stadiums for sports teams that are owned by millionaires and billionaires. You're asking not one city, but two cities to build stadiums for one team to play half the year there? That's not going to fly. I'm sorry. That's a terrible use of taxpayer money in the 21st century when the money could be going to improving schools, paying our cops and firefighters, paying teachers. That doesn't make sense for two different cities to be throwing hundreds of million dollars down the drain for a stadium that's only going to get used for three months a year. Another problem with this theory. The example I gave before, Kansas City, Omaha with the Kings, Milwaukee and Green Bay with the Packers, Brooklyn and Long Island for the Islanders. Those all involve cities that are relatively close to each other. Tampa and Montreal are over 3,000 miles apart from each other. What fan base is going to support this team when it's not going to be there for half the season? What player is going to say, you know what, I'm going to sign with the Rays when in the middle of June, I got to uproot my entire family and move to Montreal in another country for the second half of the year. If the team is successful in this arrangement, which is hard to believe because that's a big to-do for the front office, the owner, the coaches, the players. You're basically uprooting their lives halfway through a season. If all that happens and they play well and they get to the playoffs, who's hosting the playoff games? Are we going to do what the NHL did with the Islanders, have them host a round in Tampa Bay and another round in Montreal? That's really weird. Can you imagine being a player You on Tampa, in Tampa Bay first half, in Montreal the second half, make the postseason, all of a sudden you have to fly back to Tampa for a couple weeks to play the first round? I don't like that. This, to me, this is the clearest evidence we have yet that as soon as that lease is up, as soon as they are out of that ironclad deal with the state of St. Petersburg, the Rays are gone. We don't know where yet. Maybe it's Montreal. Nashville, possibly. Charlotte, Las Vegas, Portland, Oregon. Wherever it is, they are gone. This is basically the warning shot from the Rays saying, you know what? Help us out or we're leaving. And I don't blame them. The numbers speak for themselves. Tampa Bay just does not care about baseball. This is not a Marlins situation where the team's been a complete dumpster fire 15 years, basically trying to win quickly and then dumping off everybody they can for fire sales. They don't want to pay anyone. The Rays have been consistently contending for 15 years, and the Prouds don't show up. It's hard to succeed in the entertainment business when you don't have crowds coming out to be entertained. It's a shame for these three, for the diehard race fans, for all 5,000 were going every game. But the lack of casual interest in the baseball team, that's going to lead to them moving. Now, splitting cities is a pipe dream, but I think they are not wrong. I think the only way Tampa Bay has a baseball team after 2027 is if they share it with someone else, assuming they don't give the race a ballpark. All right, up next, we're going to this week's two-minute drill. We're going to break down the latest fiasco surrounding the New York Mets and the clubhouse reporter cursing out gate right after this. Two men on, tying run now in scoring position. Baez the batter, and Baez hits one in the air to right field and deep. Back goes Conforto. It's got a chance. Gone! Three-run homer, Javier Baez. Listen to this crowd. For Baez, career home run number 100, 
What a great moment at Wrigley. Cubs lead by a score of 4-2. to two. All right, we are back on this week's two-minute drill. That call is heard courtesy of WGN Chicago. Was the Mets' latest failure to win a road series. Seth Lugo gives up the go-ahead three-run homer in the eighth inning. Clearly tiring after tossing over 40 pitches in the over an inning and a third. Mets end up losing this game 5-3. Going from winning a series on the road for the first time since the first week of April to another disappointing split. The Mets are doing slightly better than I expect on this trip so far. They are 3-4 and four heading into Philadelphia this week for the last four games of it. But they are still 37-41, still going nowhere, and it's wearing thin in that clubhouse. After the game, manager Mickey Calloway was pressed for questions by the media about why Edwin Diaz was not in this game. It's a very good question. Diaz, the Mets' big offseason acquisition, I pitched only once in a week. Had thrown 12 pitches in that game. So if there was a spot for him to get five outs, that was it. He was not even warming up in this game. So the media asked about that. Matt E. Holt of Yahoo specifically asked him that question several times. Mickey gets agitated. After that, after the media breaks up, the reporters are in the locker room. All hell starts breaking loose. According to various accounts, Tim Healy of Newsday was in the locker room. Mickey walks by after he gets changed. Tim says, see you tomorrow, Mickey. And Mickey loses his mind. Starts cursing him out. Basically accusing him of antagonizing the team. Tries to get clubhouse PR staff to throw Healy out of the clubhouse for having the audacity to tell him he'd see him tomorrow. And to make matters worse, Jason Vargas who has been a good pitcher for the Mets of all five minutes, decides, you know what, I'm going to get on this fun too. He basically threatens to knock out Tim Healy and was charging at him and had to be stopped by Noah Syndergaard and Carlos Gomez before Healy leaves the clubhouse. What a disgrace from this organization. And they followed up last night with a very weak canned statement, basically saying they apologized to Healy and that they're going to have internal discussions about what's going to happen next. Now, I expect Vargas and Mickey to get fined, but what a disastrous look for this franchise, which, again, incompetence is a part of this circus-like atmosphere, and they just don't get it. They do not understand that they are the reason why this team is a disaster again and again and again. The front office and the owner, Mr. Jeff Wilpon, he creates this culture where things like this are happening every year and nothing changes. You want good context? Mike Puma, another one of the Met Beat reports in the New York Post, was in the room yesterday. He called in WFAN last night, spoke to Chris Moore. I pulled a clip from that interview I think is very enlightening. Let's listen to what they had to say in this conversation. You put out a tweet uh, now 45 minutes ago, and I'm going to read it, and then I want you to just comment on it to, to the thought of why you wrote it. Quote, Mike Puma, New York Post underscore Mets. Uh, Mets are toxic right now. Lots of distrust among coaching staff, players, and front office. Possible that Mickey Calloway is trying to get fired. Hence today's blow-up with Tim Healy of Newsday. Yeah, I, I right now uh, it's described to me that the, the distrust 
between uh, the Will Ponds. Now, the Will Ponds in the front office, I, I, I count as one unit, and the players and the coaching staff as another. It was described to me that the distrust between the two levels is at a high point in recent years, even uh, worse than last year when it was, was pretty bad. And uh, I, I, I get the sense that Mickey Callaway just might be at the end of his rope here. He, he, he's getting coached in every direction, uh, how to deal with the media, uh, who should be in his lineup, uh, uh, when to use relievers. I mean, he is, uh, he is not his own man in there, and it, he may be at the point now where he's just like, the heck with it. Uh, if he quits, he doesn't get paid. He's got another year and a half left on his contract, so... He just may be at wit's end here and saying, you know what, let them fire me. I mean, look, it's not rocket science. You don't do that, especially when you have a losing record. You know, maybe Belichick can do it. Maybe Popovich can do it. But there's a short list of guys who can do that and live to tell about it when their team is losing and in many people's mind underperforming. So did that enter into your thought that maybe Mickey doesn't want to be here anymore? Absolutely. It, it, it kind of uh, looks like a cry for help to me. You almost feel like he might be relieved rather than disappointed. Yeah. You know, I think it's something that's been building up a little bit. He, he, he's, he's certainly not happy with all the, the questioning he gets about the bullpen. And with, with the front office having so much input, Mickey's got to be kind of the front man for the front office's decisions here. That says a ton right there. That two-and-a-half-minute exchange between Chris Moore and Mike Puma, who was in the room, by the way, and saw all this happen. The Mets are now basically hiding behind the analytics to justify all their decisions. And they are now one of these teams that the front office has a big hand in building this roster and how the manager sets the lineup every day. And when things are going bad, they're nowhere to be found. Nobody in that front office has any accountability. They're leaving poor Mickey Callaway down there to basically answer all the press questions about why wasn't Lugo taken out after throwing 40 pitches? Why wasn't Diaz up? Why wasn't somebody else up? You don't see Brody Van Wagenen down there talking to the press every day. You don't see Jeff Wilpon ever talking to the press, let alone on a daily basis. Now, Mickey is clearly in the wrong here, and so is Vargas. Neither one of them should have ever threatened Tim Healy. And the fact that they end up cursing out a guy in front of a dozen witnesses and basically are going to get away with it just a slap on the wrist is embarrassing as a franchise. But this speaks to a bigger problem here. Mickey Calloway might be so aggravated by his situation that he is trying to get himself fired to get out of the toxic waste dump that is the New York Mets. Think about that for a second. He decided, you know what? According to Puma's theory... I can get myself out of here with pay by cursing out a reporter. That's where we are with the Mets now. And Puma went on WFAN today with Joe Beningo and Evan Roberts where they asked him, they said, why isn't, if Mickey wants to be out so bad, why don't they fire him and just give him to Jim Riggleman? Puma's take was that the front office does not believe they can control Jim Riggleman and that Riggleman will not be as receptive to all their input on the lineup and the bullpen management and so on and so forth. Let me get this straight here. The front office, and by front office, I mean Jeff, by the way, not Brody. Jeff Wilpon's the one who wanted Brody Van Wagen to be the GM. Jeff Wilpon asked Brody Van Wagen to interview for this job. 
Jeff Wilpon hired Brody Van Wagenen so he'd have a buddy who let him basically pretend to be a GM, GM of a baseball team. Jeff Wilpon runs this entire organization. Jeff Wilpon cares more about having his say and pretending he can be involved in the baseball operation and know what he's doing to help the Mets win. God help us. God help us, Mets fans. You deserve so much better than an incompetent owner like that. And Jeff, I know you're not listening to this, but either step down and let the baseball people do their jobs or sell the team. Enough of this garbage. Seriously. We have reached a point now where the manager might be trying to get himself fired because they want to deal with the toxic environment you're creating in there. And this happens every cycle with every GM, every manager, every player. You know what the constant is? You. You and your father are the constants in this mess. And until you guys realize you're the problem, nothing's changing. All right, and that will do for this week's show. I thank my guest Ian Levy for calling in to talk about the NBA offseason and where all these crazy free agents might end up. And Veronica Bruno for also calling in to talk about Wimbledon, which begins on July 1st on ESPN and the Family of Networks. If you want more good stuff like this podcast, include a look at the one very extreme scenario where the Knicks could consider taking on Chris Paul's contract. Be sure to check out my blog over at justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. Feel free to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Stitcher. You can go there, find all our old episodes on there. Subscribe, get ready for all the new ones. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And tweet me with the hashtag, see you tomorrow, at the end of this week's show. Next week, we're going to dive more into the NBA, look at what's going on at the free agency. We'll preview the Subway Series, what that's worth. The Mets are probably going to be dead and buried by the time we get there. Yankees still in first place. We'll have some other stuff about the All-Star team and more. Until then, I hope you have a better week than Tim Healy. (laughs) 